lesson is taken from Revelation chapter 12 and uh, beginning at verse 13. Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 13, and that's on page 1926. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The word of the Lord. May we pray. Help me, Lord, to be clear and concise as I always pray. But help me, Lord, to be compelling and practical. Anoint me with your Holy Spirit, for it's only as you anoint a preacher with the Holy Spirit that he can take the truths of Holy Scripture and grind them in the mortar and pestle of the trials of life and give forth your word as it is preached that changes hearts and encourages your people. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now we want to consider this passage of Scripture again. We looked at the first part of it uh, last Lord's Day, and we're skipping over part of it. I've preached out of this before. It's always been a favorite uh, passage for, for Christmas because the very first time I did it five Christmases ago here, I talked about how the dragon almost stole Christmas. But... What's here is something that, reflecting on the very nature of this last book of the Bible, which has a magnificent symphony, takes all of these themes out of the Old Testament and weaves them together into a beautiful symphony of the triumph of God over all his and our enemies. And that we have here. Now, if you think about a few things here, you're struck. First of all, the time, time, and half a time. That's taken from the book of Daniel. I'm not going to re-preach the book of Daniel because I did preach on that section back uh, less than a year ago. And we understand, and you'll have to check this out. I'll send the link to the previous sermon. That the book of Daniel, of 70 weeks of Daniel, that the last week of the book of Daniel is not future for us. Half of it is past for us because Christ is crucified in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. And then what follows is three and a half years. That is, if a week is like uh, a, a week of days or a week of years. So what's left in the book of Daniel that was future for all believers from the time of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is a period of three and a half years, or 1260 days, or 42 months, or time, times, and half a time. It's the same period of time. And so, again, I won't re-preach uh, Daniel's 70th week, but I'll send the links. 
But what you do have here is that this period of time from the crucifixion of Christ, midpoint in Daniel's 70th week, until the end of time, is this period of time. Time, times, and half a time. The next thing that we want to see here is this. Who is the woman? Well, last Lord's Day, we concluded that the woman is Israel. And we concluded that the woman is Eve. And we concluded that the woman is Mary. And so what you have here, as this woman flees, notice that the woman is not identical uh, to verse 17, uh, Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman, you see, because she's rescued, and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony. Who are those people? Now, here's my theory. And theories need to be held loosely. My theory is that the woman in view at this point are Jewish believers in the first century. And it parallels strikingly what we read in the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24 and 25, uh, Mark 13 and Luke 21. It's very parallel. And what we do know is that Jesus had warned his disciples before he was crucified that when they saw the armies surrounding the city, and that Luke 21 makes it very plain that he's talking about foreign armies surrounding Jerusalem, then they are to flee and get out of the city, not go back down and get something out of their house, jump from roof to roof, Get out. If you're outside the city, stay outside the city because terrible things will happen. Now, if you read Luke 21, the army surrounding Jerusalem, that's parallel with Matthew 24 and uh, Mark uh, 13 with the abomination of desolation. What is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet? Well, it had a fulfillment initially uh, in the time shortly after Daniel. Uh, right now, the Jewish people are celebrating Hanukkah, and uh, Hanukkah celebrates the deliverance of the Jewish people against the Greeks. The Greeks were the cruelest of all the people who ever dealt with the Jewish people, and they forced the Jews to become Greeks. That was the goal. Alexander the Great's vision was that every nation, tongue, and tribe would become Greek. They would speak a common language, Greek. They would have a common culture, and we can think of all of the plays uh, from Euripides and Sophocles to Aristophanes to the philosophers Plato, Socrates, and uh, Aristotle. The goal of Alexander the Great was to convert the world to Greek ways. And when the Jews would not do that, he concocted the most Vicious, not he himself, but Alexander struck down in the prime of life. The four generals who succeed him, that is Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, their descendants did terrible things to the Jewish people. Things like when a woman did not circumcise, uh, when a woman circumcised her child, uh, they killed the child and hung it around her neck, or frying people in giant frying pans. I mean, the, the butchery and, and torture of the Greeks uh, towards the Jewish people, both out of the south, the Ptolemies out of Egypt, and the Seleucids out of, out of Antioch in Syria, are unbelievable. And if you 
Look at an original King James Version. It has the Apocrypha. You read First and Second Maccabees. They describe these tortures. And so anyhow, under all of that, there's a great deliverance. The Jews celebrate that great deliverance at Hanukkah. What happens is that the temple had been defiled by this successor of Alexander the Great, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means manifestation. And Antiochus believed he was a manifestation of the gods. And so he went to Jerusalem. He slaughtered a hog on the holy altar of God in Jerusalem at the temple and profaned the temple by slaughtering a pig in honor of the Olympian god Zeus. And so furious persecution arose, and the Jews resisted, and then God raised up his hammer. And that was the uh, Hasmoneans, who were, uh, who were the descendants of a Jewish priest. And we, the, Maccabee, the word Maccabee refers to a hammer. So God's hammer was the Hasmonean family that led the Jews in revolt, and they defeated Antiochus Epiphanes, and they went to the temple to rededicate it to the Lord. And in Jewish tradition and legend, they had only one day's supply of sacred oil, and they had to consecrate others. But that one day's supply of oil to light the candelabra uh, in the Holy of Holies or outside the Holy of Holies uh, in the holy place lasted seven days. That's the tradition of Hanukkah, which Jewish people are celebrating right now. And so the abomination of desolation has its initial fulfillment uh, in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. But it also, because prophecy recapitulates, has a fulfillment in the time of the Romans when they destroyed uh, the, the, the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple so that not one stone of the temple was left standing on another. The only thing that was left were the foundation stones that were there to reinforce it. So in 70 AD, the Roman armies, and remember that the, the symbol of the Roman that they carried was a buzzard, an eagle. The words are indistinguishable in Greek. And so when you see the, the abomination of desolation, and he talks about where the vulture is, where the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered. So the, the Roman symbol the eagle, a carrion bird, and in the case of buzzard. And so Jesus is saying all that there. Now, so what happened to the Jewish Christians? They remembered what Jesus had told them in, in the Olivet Discourse, and they got out. Because what happened amazingly is that Jerusalem was surrounded by Roman armies under the, the Syrian legate, that is the emissary of, of the Roman emperor, and for some reason, mysteriously, Cestius Gallus, who was that Roman uh, general, retreated. He didn't realize the city was ready to cave in, but he retreated. And what that did was to allow the Jewish believers in Jesus to escape. And they, went into, they escaped into the wilderness. They had a place prepared for them. They survived when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed because they remembered what Jesus said. And so my theory here in Revelation chapter 12 and, uh, and, and verse, uh, look at there with uh, 
Verse 15, then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent, but the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the serpent was enraged at the woman, that is, Jewish believers, and then went off to make war against the rest of her offspring who obey God's commandments and hold the testimony of Jesus. So I believe that this has a fulfillment, notice I said a fulfillment, in the first century of the Christian era. By the way, CE means Christian era, and BCE means before the Christian era. Don't let anybody tell you it means something different. <laughs> so, so in the first century of the Christian era, this prophecy in the book of Revelation has an initial fulfillment and that is the protection of the Jewish believers and also of the Gentile believers later on. But that's not the end of the story, as we know that prophecy recapitulates. We will see these things in the future, and we see them in a certain sense throughout history. Now let's look, if we can think of Pachelbel's canon for a moment, let's look at some Old Testament themes that are clearly here. First of all, the woman is delivered... In verse 14, the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert. The wings of a great eagle. Turn with me, if you would, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And this is a song of Moses that foretells the future of the Jewish people. And right there in the middle of it, he tells us something about how God dealt with uh, his, his people, the descendants of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at verse 10. That's page 323, Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. In a desert land, he found him in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him, uh, shielded and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, it spreads its wings to catch them. He carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. Now, I think this is one of many times that God speaks of bearing us up on eagles' wings. And that's what he did for the Jewish people in the wilderness. Go back for a moment. Uh, to the previous page, 323. And if you look at verse 8, he says this, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up, a boundaries, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. And I need to make a comment. If you look down at the bottom, it says that's the Masoretic text, but the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Greek Septuagint say something else. Do you know what the, what the Dead Sea Scrolls say there? God divided up the nations according to the B'nai Elohim. That's a Hebrew phrase. The sons of God. The B'nai Elohim. And that's exactly how the Greek Septuagint understands it. Who are the B'nai Elohim? That is the angels under God's administration. And what in saying in the original scriptures, because the Dead Sea Scrolls 
are a far more ancient Hebrew text than that of our Hebrew Bibles because the oldest Hebrew manuscript that we have, uh, which is Codex Leningradus, uh, is about from around 1,000 uh, in the Christian era. And so the Septuagint reflects an older Hebrew text and the original Hebrew text is encapsulated in the Dead Sea Scrolls. God divided up the nations according to these ruling angels, principalities, and powers, he says. Now notice, because this is very interesting. So he set the boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, the angels. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. Now that's an interesting thing. You see, God allowed these mighty angel spirits, these ruling principalities and powers to administer the things in Moab, in, uh, in Babylon, in Assyria, in Egypt. They're under these powerful, powerful archangels. But what God says here, which is very striking, is he chose the Jewish people as his inheritance. In other words, he let these other godlings Remember, there's only one true God, but we have these supernatural beings that rule over the affairs of men and nations, and they are supernatural, they are real, but they're not gods. But what God's saying is that Israel is his unique possession of all the nations of the earth. Think of Amos 3.2. You only have I known of all the nations of the earth, Therefore, I'm going to punish you for your sins. Think about that. Do you ever feel like God's chastening you? It's because he loves you. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not real sons. So in other words, God chose the descendants of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob as his unique treasure on earth and sent his son to redeem them. So there's the eagle's wings. Now there's something else here. I want you to look over to Psalm 128. Psalm 124. I'm sorry. Psalm 124. And look at what we have here. Boy. He says, Psalm 124. These fingers don't work well anymore. On page 966, I'm going to read this song to you. This is a song of David, and it's also called a song of ascents. What is a song of ascents? It's a song that would have been recited as people would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So that's what it is. Now look at what he says. If the Lord, that is God's proper name, Yahweh, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side, when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us up alive. Look at the next uh, clause there. Verse 4, page 967. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. You see that? You see how Pachelbel's canon, again, a, a musical theme prophetically by David 
in Psalm 124 is picked up on in the book of Revelation. And what you see here is what goes on in the world today. It went on in David's day. It went on in the first century. It goes on today. And that is that at times it seems as if we are being literally overwhelmed and swept away by the troubles of life. You ever felt that way? Lord, I'm drowning. Lord, I'm drowning. Will you release me, Lord? Will you help me? My, my head's going under the water. I remember the foolish, one of many foolish things I did one time back when I rode my motorcycle, back when I had a motorcycle, I decided to go canoeing on my lake, which is at the end of our hill. And so I took my canoe, I got in, the dogs wanted to join me. It was bitter cold winter. And anyhow, I decided to try a technique that enables you to have to uh, row only on one side of a canoe. And what do you do? You try to let it tilt up, and you, you just use your body to move her, the, the canoe either to the right or the left while you paddle on one side. Well, it was a windy, bitter, cold day, and right around the point on the other side of where our house is, the wind caught the canoe and flipped it over. Oh, by the way, the dogs did uh, bark and wanted to get out because dogs are smarter than people sometimes. And so there I am, the canoe flips. I go under the icy water of our lake in January, and when my head came out of the water, the first words out of my mouth were, Help me, Jesus! And you know what happened? He helped me. He put a thought in my mind. Grab onto that canoe. And I did. I grabbed on the canoe. I used it for buoyancy, and I kicked with my feet until I finally got solid earth underneath me. And then I went up on the shore, emptied out the water, got back in, because I, the fastest way back to my home was in that canoe, and I canoed back to my house, where even ice-cold water out of the shower was burning hot because I was so cold. And what am I saying? You know, life's like that, isn't it? If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ends with a description of two houses, a house that's built on the rock, a house that's built on the sands. And what happens? The same things happen to both houses. The rains come down, the floods rise up, and they're going to overwhelm. They're going to knock that house down. But the house that built on the rock stands. Brothers and sisters, we're... We're people whose house is built on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. People in the world, their houses are built on sand. When the floods come, when the rains come down, when they're pummeled, when they're overwhelming, when they're crying out, oh God, help me, help me, help me. God helps. God helps His own. And God does miracles. If we think of another theme out of the Old Testament, the theme of the Exodus, in the Exodus, it's as if a chaos dragon called Tiamat. Uh, it's as if a, key, a, a chaos dragon uh, is going to destroy Israel when she's escaped from Egypt and Pharaoh, and there she is in front of the Sea of Reeds, Yom Suf, or the Red Sea. And where are they going to go? Pharaoh's army is coming. The chariots are racing. The noise is terrible. And there before them is no escape. The water's there. Are we going to be deluged? Are we going to be destroyed? Lord, what are we going to do? And God intervenes. 
He rescues them. And again, it's this theme, isn't it? The torrent, the water, the, the waters of chaos, the waters of trouble. God splits apart. Just as the Psalms reiterate some of the pagan mythology about people like Rahab. By the way, she is the prostitute of Jericho. But Rahab, she was named for a monster called Rahab. And what does God do with Rahab? He slits her in half. He slaughters Rahab. The Lord God defeats these monsters of chaos and destruction because Israel was going to be swallowed up alive in the Exodus. But what does God do? He not only splits that horrible sea monster apart, but in splitting her apart, the land is dry. And God intervenes by taking his manifest presence, the pillar of fire and smoke, and he shifts from leading Israel to going behind them to prevent Pharaoh from attacking all night long. And he's giving light to the Israelites, and he's giving darkness to the, uh, to the Egyptians. And so what happens is, when the last Israelite has crossed over on dry land, then God lifts that cloud out of the way. The armies of Pharaoh look and say, hey, they did it, we can do it. And as soon as they get down there, their chariot wheels begin to bog down. And then suddenly God releases the waters and they are immersed. You and I are not immersed. You and I escape. And so in Psalm 126, we see this terrible thing where we would have been swallowed up alive. When their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us up alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the snareless, fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Turn with me briefly back to Revelation chapter 12. And so what we see here in Revelation 12 is something that is based on things that happened in the past, partial fulfillments, and there on page uh, 1926, the dragon, this creature who was in the Garden of Eden, is enraged. The woman escapes, verse 14, on two wings of an eagle for that season. Verse 15 uh, then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But verse 16, the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river, the dragon that spewed out. Think of that again in the Exodus. In the parting of the Red Sea, Yom Suf, in the parting of the Red Sea, God is causing the earth to open up, as it were, and after a manner of speaking, and provide the way of deliverance. But the water's not touching his own people. And by the way, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that all those people who left Egypt, those who were loyal to the Lord God, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. How were they baptized? By Moses in the cloud and the sea. 
Who was immersed? The Egyptians were immersed. But God's people were sprinkled with a mist of water. Now, I I realize you say, well, that's stretching. I'm not trying to argue about modes of baptism. That's a, a silly argument about things in many ways. The mode of baptism is utterly unimportant in the New Testament. I want to say that again, as God is my witness. If it were important, God would have done what he had done in the book of Leviticus. There's no New Testament book of Leviticus. You can make a case for sprinkling in the New Testament document. You can make a case for pouring in the New Testament document. And you can make a case for immersion in the New Testament document. The important thing is not how you're baptized, but that you're baptized. And why? Because baptism is an outward sign of an inward work of grace. But the important thing that we end with is this. What had an initial fulfillment in the first century is still going on in our world today. When you feel absolutely overwhelmed with the floods of life, and it seems that it's only natural, I mean, hey, ask yourself this question. Isn't that the picture in view that it's all natural here and yet it's also supernatural? When you're overwhelmed, when you're drowning, so Lord, I'm drowning, help me. Just like old crazy Bob in the, in the frozen lake, no, it wasn't frozen, but it was freezing, coming up out of the water and saying, Lord, Jesus, help me. He did. And this I want to say to you, no matter who you are, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what troubles you face today, Today, on the 10th day of December, in the year of our Lord, 2023, no matter what you're going through, no matter what's going on in your life, I swear to you before Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Lord will rescue you. He will take care of you. You will not be destroyed. When cruel men arise against you in the form of floods of trouble, God is in control. Dear ones, I say this. Why are my wife and I happy people? We are overwhelmingly happy people. I want to tell you why. Why are we happy? We experience the same troubles as everybody else. The troubles of life, whether they're medical or relational or financial or this or that, we face those same trials. But we rest on one fundamental truth. All things, not some things, all things work together for good to those who love God. All things are not good. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens. You're going to have bad things happen to you. But dear ones in Christ, there's nothing that happens to you that Almighty God is not going to cause to work out for your good. And what is the ultimate good, according to Romans 8, 28 and 29? He wants to make you and me more like Jesus. Because the standard for the Christian life isn't even the Ten Commandments. It isn't even the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. The ultimate standard of the Christian life is being like Jesus in this world. Modeling the teachings of Jesus and his life. How did Jesus live with others? He turned the other cheek. He said even to people didn't ask him for forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All reconciliation in this life is superficial because nobody knows his own heart. But at the judgment seat of Christ, when everything is open, everybody will see their own role in everything. 
That's when there'll be full, real, radical, and complete reconciliation. But until then, in a world of superficial reconciliation and much trouble, be pregnant with hope. Be pregnant with confidence that God is on your side, that he will cause the earth to swallow the satanic torrent that's poured out against you. And in the long run, you will be amazed at what God has done. I'll tell you one last story, and for those particularly who are watching. Many years ago, there was a burglar, and I've told the story before, by the name of Danny Singleton. And Danny was a very smart burglar. He had studied, uh, he had studied disarming uh, burglar alarms and many other things when he was, a, he was incarcerated in juvenile detention in Louisiana. And uh, when he got out, he put to use the skills he learned in Louisiana's most excellent school for training criminals. And um, so what he would do, he knew that during grazing season, now grazing season is from Thanksgiving, and if you're in Louisiana, through Mardi Gras. That's grazing season. And uh, that's when people really put on the beef. Well, anyhow... People do something else during grazing season. If they've got a $13,000 mink coat, if they've got a $50,000 diamond necklace, they normally keep it in a vault at the bank. But during grazing season, they pull those things out and have them in their home. And so Danny would go on several different streets in Alexandria where the 1% live, and he would case those places. And what he would do, and this is before cell phones and answering machines, he would go back to his motel, he would see this couple leaving, and he would go back to his motel and call their telephone number. And then he would park his car on another street, have on jogging clothes with his burglar tools in his uh, jogging clothes, and he would jog right up their driveway next to their house, and he would listen. And if the phone was ringing... He knew he was okay. So, taking the, those wonderful skills he learned in reform school uh, and putting them to use, he disabled their burglar alarm and he went in. And most people uh, have their stuff upstairs, and so he would go on upstairs and he would stay there, uh, totally content, not worried at all, until he heard the phone no longer ringing, in which case he knew it was time to get out of Dodge. And so he would steal lots of things. And the curious thing is that he actually was serving time in St. Landry Parish Jail, but two deputies would let him out in return for his returning to them these items that he was stealing. And I learned back then that you get 10% on the dollar. And so anyhow, this is a long story short. Uh, so my closest friend there, who if he were alive today would be 96, was very close friends with the district attorney. And the district attorney told my friend Dick, he said, Dick, why don't you get your preacher to go up and see Danny Singleton? So I went in to see Danny, and it was the old Alexandria City Jail, and I went in and I began to talk to him. And I began to share the gospel with him. And, uh, and I said, Danny, I want to tell you a basic truth. What's that, he said. I said, the moment, if you commit your life to Jesus Christ, the moment it's in your best interest to get out of jail, that door will be open. And he used several uh, Anglo-Saxon onomatopoeic uh, words to tell me he didn't believe that. 
And so he said, you can go on and leave. So I went to call the jailer. And the jailer had forgotten to lock the door. And so when it swung open, he said, come back in here. And we became friends, and I actually rode with him when he was <coughs> being escorted to St. Landry Parish by two Alexandria police detectives in the front. And they were nervous as cats because once we crossed into St. Landry Parish, they were concerned that somebody was going to try to kill him. And, and we got there okay. But what I'm saying is this. Whomever you are watching, no matter what you're going through in life, you may be in prison. You may be facing total financial disaster. Your marriage may be broken apart. You may be deeply concerned for children and grandchildren. No matter what's going on in your life, I can tell you this, as God is my witness, the moment that it is in your best interest for those things to cease and you to walk in freedom again, that door will be open. And in the meantime, if you're in jail, I can tell you this. Look at it not as God punishing you anymore, but look at it as an opportunity. God has sent you into a very difficult mission field so you can share your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with other people who would never hear you if you were not sharing in their circumstances. Just as Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail praise God in the middle of the night, and he used that powerful testimony. May we pray. Lord, I pray that as we face the storms of life, as we face the floodwaters of the great red dragon who wants to sweep us away in the torrent, torrential stream, Lord, may we look up knowing that you will always take care of us, you will rescue us, you will bless us for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Our next hymn is number 690, He Leadeth Me.